1874, the British government passed a series of laws called the Regulation of Public Worship. A lot of people cared an awful lot about church back then. True. On one side, people wanted more ritual and ceremony. On the other side, they wanted mostly none. In the midst of the battle, one minister, a rector in London at a church called St. George in the East, had stopped a practice whereby people who volunteered in church services could avail themselves of liquor from the rector's cupboard before and after the service. The Reverend King closed the cupboard. We have opened it again. Welcome to the rector's cupboard. Order. Well, welcome to the Rector's Cupboard. This is our first episode ever, and we're here at Wild Eye Brewery in North wow. Vancouver. Thank you to Wild Eye. And uh, what we're talking about, the whole reason for this podcast, is we want to talk about hope. So a number of us that will be involved in this podcast come from some kind of faith or religious or church background. And from within that context, we've sometimes noticed that it seems a little less than hopeful uh, in terms of where things are headed or how we're to think of the world. Uh, but we also wanted to be careful to say we don't only see that hopelessness within religious culture, that we also see it kind of in the world in general. And so our intent, our hope in this podcast is to try to steer things in a little more hopeful direction, but with intelligence and consideration. And so we'll look at a number of topics and, uh, and look at how can we generally be more hopeful. Uh, here today with me, we have Allison Williams and Catherine Woodyard. Welcome you too. Thank you. Good to Thank see you. you. Here. And our guest, who we'll introduce officially a few minutes from now, is Ross Lockhart. Pleasure, uh, sir. Ross will Good to tell be here. Who you are? Um, but I figured we'd start controversially. Now it might be more Ooh, more controversial course. for Ross and I because we're older. Old men. I believe I said before we started, crypt keepers. Crypt keepers. So yes. Like we, there's a lot of things we don't like about mm-hmm. how things have changed. I don't know if that's true. We're like the guys in the Muppets, the old dudes in the belt. Oh my goodness. We're like that. No. You are a bit like that. But anyway, uh, so the controversy is this. When, when I was growing up, and certainly as soon as you're within kind of a more so-called evangelical religious culture, um, uh, one of the superstars of that culture is Billy Graham. So now the three of you have heard of Billy Graham. Of course. Okay. Yes. Sure. Uh, so Rick, our producer, uh, he can't say hi, can he? He can't say it, but you no. won't hear him. Uh, <laughs> Rick and I were counselors at a Billy Graham crusade in about 1984, 1985, something like that. I didn't know this We were in you. high school. Yeah. We were counselors. You had tags, mm-hmm. and you were trained. I think we went to like six or seven training sessions. And we also tried to invite people. And so, like, to come to the crusade at BC Place and you... But I came across something recently. This is real thing. Mm. On TV, like, you know, channels, stations, oh and, yeah. and stuff. Like, people, not this channel? You people, are sounding people old still, here, Todd. Do people still watch TV? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I was, like, I used to be a pastor, and yeah. so... And I'm not currently doing that. And so Sunday afternoon, I was just so much more relaxed. And I thought, <laughs> what is there on television to watch? And I didn't really, not really that into the NFL football. Or, and there was this channel... I don't know what the channel was, but it, the show was called Billy Graham Classics. Amazing. And so I thought, I need to watch that. And it was from it was a Billy Graham Crusade. Mm-hmm. Now, do you find it interesting that they would use the name Crusade for those? It, in this context? See, at the time, a bit we didn't tricky. think of that, right? Sure. Rick, like, we, we thought that's just the name of the thing. But now, having done some education and looked at religious history, and other, I think... It feels a little it's off. It's interesting that a Christian would use the name Crusade. <laughs> yes. Given, right? So anyway, that's one thing. But here's what I wanted to point out. I'm watching this on, on Sunday afternoon. He's definitely a good, and we'd say gifted speaker, and all that kind of thing. But his topic was on hell. Mm. 
and how there's three kinds of hell, and he was teaching about it. And it's traffic in Vancouver being so, one. Yeah, I mean, he, well, he said the family is yeah. one, but anyway, I don't yeah. know what was Whoa. going on. Wow, something was going like wrong hell there. hell can be in your family. Sure. But maybe that's it. Yeah. Just talking about Franklin. But anyway, there was... And then he did the kind of sales thing at the end, right? Where yeah. you're supposed to say, like, now you can accept Jesus. Always be closing for Jesus. Right. Yeah. And, I, and I was part of that. Like, I was ABC. Always yeah. be That's closing. Awesome. That's good. Wow. Yeah. Then okay. Gary. Thanks, Ross. I'm with you. <laughs> Thank you, Ross. So I had my counselor tag, and I realized now, and then they would sing Just As I Am. Do you remember that? Uh, sure. Just mm. As I Am. Yeah. We could sing it right yeah. now. Yeah. Could you? I, I choose not to. <laughs> there it is. Unbelievable. Would they sing it this slow? Yeah, they would because wow. because you have to like that's when you start going to the front and there was this huge space at the front. Yeah, oh, right. And right. I used to think that's just like thousands of people accepting Christ, and then I realized once I was an insider, right? Like more than half of those people are counselors, but that's still cool. There's still yeah. a lot of people accepting yeah. Jesus. But the, the the sales was he said, and this is kind of what I wanted to talk about. Um, imagine if there's even a ten percent chance. Mm that there's like an eternal hell where you're punished forever, Yeah. right? Would you take a chance? If you were told tonight that Suppose there was, there's only a there 10% oh, chance wow, Rick. that a there's a hell. Is it worth taking it? Suppose you went out to the airport and you were going to go from here to Seattle or some such city or to Los Angeles and they said there's a, only a 10% chance that, or, or pardon me, there's a 10% chance that it won't make it. The plane won't make it. Would you get on it? Right. So that sounds like Air Canada. <laughs> I'm just surprised it doesn't involve a bus. I don't know if like, you can that's do that. the classic evangelical. Yeah, it's yeah. usually hit by a bus. So mm. buses are so bad. So it was. There might be a 10 percent chance, and they were showing these stills in the show of like a teenager or something, like a young guy, 15 sure. years old. So it's terrifying stuff, yeah. right? Because of course the thing you're playing with is if there's a 10% chance that you'll be like punished eternally, right? Mm. Which is then you're going to come up. And so I wanted to kind of. You know, get your impressions of Billy Graham if you remember, you know, that kind of way of thinking. Because that's kind of what I'm wrestling with as we get into this podcast is how can we talk about faith? How can we talk about maybe coming to faith, right? In ways that are not fearful and kind of threatening. And So anyway, I, any reflections from you guys on this? Do you remember? Well, you know? I mean, I think I was... Uh, 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 yeah, let's just be real. I'm a little younger than you. Todd. So, uh, Todd's still looking great, though, I have to you say. Know, he works really, out. Really, really. Right now, he's lifting a pen. Like, okay. he is barbell style. Sweat uh, is on the brow. Sorry, carry on. No, no. And so, I mean, at the time of that rally, uh, I was three years old. And two years later, at the tender age of five, I prayed the sinner's prayer. And, I mean... Obviously, I don't have, I don't honestly have negative right. um, feelings about that moment. I think it's wonderful. Um, but as a parent now, I have a seven-year-old, and I think to myself, I cannot believe at the age of five that I had a concept of the crucifixion, and I had a concept of the fact that I was bad, uh, sinful, and needed that uh, that Savior's prayer, that at sinner's five prayer, years old. at five years old, and I think, I think you know, the hell piece or the focus on hell wasn't really as much for me, but definitely that sense that there was something wrong with me, and the glory that it could be fixed was the thing that was the focus, right? Um, yeah, so I don't know that just yeah. Billy Graham and it made me well, think back to that time frame, that's right? That's the same context, same yeah. area, how we. 
Yeah, I'm also I'm also a little young for the actual Billy Graham Crusades. I wasn't actually you keep reminding born. us of this. Sorry, I wasn't late, actually born yet, but I, so I can make this. Remember, like five seconds ago, we'll make this like it is Excuse me while I move my walker. <laughs> <laughs> but I do remember my mother telling me that she, uh, she probably used, like she was saved at a Billy Graham Crusade. So it's something that was definitely talked about in my house, and Billy Graham was like this. Man who could so she do walked no up wrong. to the front. Yeah, during just as I am. Yeah, and I too remember I was five when I prayed that prayer, and yeah, it's very interesting now in how I understand faith. That I go, wow, I I don't think I would talk to my daughter, kind of about some of those concepts. But yet, then, do you have some some struggle then within you? How how would your kids come to know? Absolutely. Something that's so important mm. to you, if you're not going to use like that. Well, I think there's track. there's still. I, and I think it's probably to do with my my upbringing and, and the decades of kind of being in this sort of mentality. I still sometimes struggle with this little fear that gets in like the back of my head where I just go, but what if? But what if, like what if there is that 10% chance sort of a thing in my kid? And I, it's hard because I, I don't believe like that anymore. But I still find that those thoughts still creep up. Like there's still like these like ghosts, like these shadows yeah, I, of I, that. Like for me, as someone working in the church for a long time and being part of that kind of culture and yet, I think like a lot of people maybe pushing back against it in, in terms of some of the things that I thought, the the uh, the idea, and this this you know solidified more recently, the idea that it's good news if most people are like going to burn but you can be rescued, I think now I'm at a different place where I'm like that just doesn't sound like good news to me, even if I'm the you know, if a, if a hurricane came through here and, like, everybody died except for us, like, you know, I suppose in a way that would be good news, but you're you're thinking, like, I think there's... We are in a microbrewery, so I'm just are. saying, like, of all the places to be stuck during natural disaster... Actually... I'm feeling quite good at this Maybe that's moment. good news. Yeah. Good yeah. food, good yeah. beer. Like, yeah. we'd survive for yeah. a while. Always look on the bright side, well, Ross Lockhart. Thank yeah, you. Really. I'm hopeful. Thank you, Ross. So, so Brought Ross, to you by Wild Eye. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ross and I have, have uh, a common theological hero. You probably know more about him, and you signed off your emails with little quotes from him and such. A guy named Karl Barth, who was writing, you know, World War One kind of an on, mostly in Europe, but he's writing in and around the time that Billy Graham is getting his start. Mm-hmm. And and Karl Barth has, you know, is one of the people that we would say is calling us to a more hopeful, like just being more hopeful in general, but mm-hmm. certainly a more hopeful faith. He was known as a cheerful theologian. Yeah. There's a story in, in a book of, from uh, called Conversations. Mm-hmm. It's just called Conversations yep. with Barth. That he he talks about meeting Billy Graham mm-hmm. because he I think once in the United States and once in Europe, and he, and then people said like what were your impressions of him and I've got a little bit of a quote here, mm-hmm. and he speaks very highly. He says I he's in a great he liked guy, him one on one, really yeah. good guy, yeah. And and then he says um, uh, you know says these good things about him, but then differed from what he called the gospel at gunpoint, and this is Bart's quote. He said though he was so kind and nice man, he said it was very different when we went to hear him. He let loose in the stadium that evening, and I witnessed his influence on the masses, and I was horrified. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's another Christian person saying this, and I never would have known that there was anybody talking about this when I was like the yeah. counselor or whatever. He acted like a madman, and what he presented was certainly not the gospel. The gospel can't be presented at gunpoint. Mm-hmm. He, he finishes threats. They always make an impression. The more one heats up hell, the more people come running. So, and I don't know if that's necessarily true anymore, if people still come running if you heat up hell. Probably was more mm-hmm. then. 
but it's something that to think about for us to think about as we move to how can we be more hopeful mm-hmm. it's not to cast dispersions towards Billy Graham or anybody but how can we be more hopeful uh, as we talk about you know faith and theology so uh, well we're going to open the rector's cupboard I'm so excited for this by are the way. you so uh, this is do we have a sound effect to go with the opening we do but we don't have it we don't get to hear it unbelievable it'll be added post-production it's going to be so podcast <laughs> listeners I'm jealous so uh, I'll introduce you to to Ken Bell our cupboard host so he's he's the one that comes out of the cupboard but Ken Bell the Lord bless thee and yes. keep thee sir I but I thought I'd give a little bit more of an outline of why we've come up with this name Rector's Cupboard so Try and keep it kind of brief here. In 1874 in England, so Love House it. of Commons, okay, they passed a law, and the law, like or a whole series of laws, mm-hmm. was set, was called the Regulation of Public Worship. So that so a law seems to point to there to be some kind of need for that law, mm-hmm. right? Well, the need apparently was there were so many fights in churches, like Shocking. groups of people fighting, yeah. that uh, they needed to pass a law. Sounds like a presbytery meeting. And so I don't. <laughs> yeah, it does. And so I've never known about any church fights, but this, as I say, 1874. But when I was reading about this, it focused on one personality in particular, and that's a guy named the Reverend Brian King. And he worked at a place called St. George in the East. Good name. Uh, I think near London. And they appointed him as minister. So I guess the bishop, Ken, is that right? Yep, that would the be right. The bishop would appoint him. Good. Appointed him as minister in 1842. He left in 1860. But from 1842 to 1860, so how long is that? Somebody do the math. 18, 18, 18, 18 years. years um, is not good. That's a long he, time for things to not be good. Yeah. Is. Can you imagine that? How long could oh something drag on? Makes me feel better. It yes. Does. yes. <laughs> what was wrong? Well, there were a whole bunch of things. Like, they, he took a leave eventually because there were so many fights. Yep. Some of the... Some of the notes from the day talks about one of the one of the leaders, council members or something. You know the name yeah. for it, Ken? Yeah, when the council, yeah, yeah when the council members uh, talks about what's called a quote stormy vestry meeting. Ooh, in 1845. It was a dark and stormy vestry meeting. And then it meeting. broke. Yeah, and it <laughs> broke down to the point of legal action. Oh, so the the minister was suing, I guess, the head of the council or something. Sure. And that guy's name was Thomas Licorice. Which what is a great, great name. name. So it was King versus Licorice <laughs> in yeah. 1852. So this is 10 years after. Yeah. And meanwhile, people were fighting. Parishioners were taking sides. But the Reverend King can't be dismissed by the congregation, right? Can That's you correct. That? Right. Only by the bishop. And, the bishop and was, was the bishop named Cashew? I don't even know who the that bishop was. Perfect. I should have looked that up. Yes. Um, so here's some of the notes, though. Uh, May 22nd in 1859, those who disagreed with the Reverend King used their influence to call a guest preacher, uh, Hugh Allen. And Hugh Allen's preaching contrast completely with um, Brian King's. And so Brian King protests <laughs> and says, and there's like a big riot in the church. May 29th, the next Sunday, yeah. the service is stopped by a riot in the church. June 12th, the services are canceled due to disturbances and the police are called. I wish we could get back to church in the good old days. Yes. Ju- oh, yeah, I, I, right? <laughs> I hope it wasn't rally Sunday or bring your neighbor to church Sunday. Well, I would, be, I would I could bring some neighbors to that. They Indeed. would enjoy that. But June 26th, Protesters occupied the choir stalls before the service, and they were hollering and yelling, so they really couldn't do the service. And on September 10th, a visiting minister was unable to finish his sermon because, I guess, other people came in and were hollering. Yeah. And the preacher had to be rescued and escorted out by five policemen. <laughs> and finally, in 1860, Brian King left his position. It was about time at that point. And when he did, they hired a marching band 
to march him out of town. He left at the oh. back of the of the building. Jesus called somebody, me. Jesus sent me. What a friend I, yeah, what we have in Jesus. <laughs> oh, what what a friend we have in Jesus. The maybe. battle belongs to the mm. Lord. Oh. Um, but probably this is all onward, say, Christian soldier. This is all to say how we got to Rector's cupboard. Yes, because in near the beginning, near 1842, when when uh, Brian King came in, he instituted a bunch of changes. You know, like imagine a, a minister and changing the are really good at changing. People, love the change. people yeah. didn't like it, right? They, but one of the practices that he stopped, there was a practice called the rector's cupboard. Love it. You will, and you will even more in a yes. moment because the rector's cupboard was if you helped in the service. So if you volunteered in any way, yeah, you could avail yourself of the minister's liquor cabinet. I love it already. Before and after the service. If we did that, we probably would have gotten a lot more volunteers. Oh, at church. Taste. Yeah, yeah, say, at church. Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking at a lot of alcohol on the table right now. So the, a foretaste of the time. heavenly banquet, my friend. A so foretaste of the heavenly doing, banquet. Right? Mm. What mm. we're doing is opening the rector's cupboard. That's right. Amen. No offense to Brian King. We're no, not taking no, sides. No, no, no. In fact, I think sides. hearing the story, I, I feel a bit bad for him. I know. I, yeah. I take the part of the minister yeah. more. I think that's just you know experience. But, but so we're opening up the rector's cupboard again. So ready. We have a host for our rector's cupboard. That's Mr. Ken Bell. And here Wild Eye, he's going to tell us what we're doing. Well, Sam, thank you very much for hosting us here, uh, welcoming us here to Wild Eye Brewery. This is your place. Uh, what made you decide, I want to open up a brewery? Of all the things you could have done, you thought, brewery, that's what I want to do. What, uh, what led you there? Yeah, thanks for having us. Um, so it's actually funny. I started in the wine industry. I thought that was going to be my, my career. That was going to be the thing I was going to do. And... While trying to figure that out, I moved to Australia to uh, work a harvest at a winery and trying to think, okay, what should I do? Do I go into the trade? Do I go into sales? I actually I went around wine tasting one day and came across a brewery and I never actually really liked beer. I just thought it was, you know, that basic lager, um, the one that, you know, we grew up knowing. And it wasn't until someone put down a pale ale in front of me and I tasted aroma and flavor and hops and so many different types of characteristics is when I noticed, okay, well, beer is like wine. And I knew there was like a lull in Vancouver for that. At the time, there wasn't a ton of breweries back then. Right. And it took me this long to kind of come up with a plan. And I thought, this is what I want to do. I want to create something special and unique. Um, being, you know, grown at, uh, grew up on the North Shore and I thought this is, you know, where I want to be for my right. business. And uh, yeah, I mean, geez, seven years later, we're here and awesome. making great beer. <laughs> well, you've got a beautiful place here, and uh, we come here often, so we thank you very much for having us. Thank you very much. Cheers, thanks. Thank yes, uh, and it is my pleasure, after 170 years or something, someone else can do the math, we are opening the Rector's Cupboard again for the first time. Amazing. And in the Rector's Cupboard today, uh, because we're at Wild Eye Brewery, we have beer. And Yay. so I've selected two beers. One, the first one, is a dark one. I invite you to take a taste of this. It is called, this, it's again? a double nut brown. Double they, nut. They call it the Devil's Toasted Nuts. That was my nuts. nickname in high school. Did you hear the name he said? You Devil's, Devil's Toasted, Toasted Nuts. I just figure it's totally appropriate for a Was that your nickname today. in high school? <laughs> it's it's just, just irreverent enough, Ken. <laughs> Wow, it's lovely. Isn't it nice? Mm -hmm. It's a lovely one. And the other one you'll Burns enjoy. Sorry, what yeah. is this? Yeah, it's got kind? a bitterness. Not the name, it is a double nut brown. Double yeah. nut brown. I'm not usually into 
I so, like uh, uh, the other one is a, is a Rattler. They do some wonderful Rattlers here Whoa. at Wild Eye. They, um, they make their own juices or their own uh, yeah. juice to go into it. So this is a guava and ghost. Ghost is a type of beer. Uh, Rattler. So oh my gosh. enjoy that. That's it's wonderful. Very nice. Wow. And as will be our practice, the Rector's Cup remains open for the duration of the uh, conversation. Mm. Praise and the Lord. so enjoy. If you're yes, running low, we'll let me drinking. know. And uh, back Thank over to this much, discussion. Thank yeah. you, Ken. That, that rattler changed oh. my life, like but not juice. like Jesus. That you're was supposed, unbelievable. Well, you're supposed to drink these after you go bike riding. Is that right? Yeah. Like okay. you ride your bicycle. And then you, and have, then you have a rattler. Because they're kind of a light... Yeah, yeah it, like often, yeah. Tastes yeah. like a breakfast mimosa. It, yeah. Well said. Hi, Catherine. Welcome yes. back. Well, thanks. <laughs> Gave up my seat for Ken. So Mel. here's the time when we introduce uh, Ross Lockhart. Oh, dear. Just Formally. Just tell you a little about his yes. bio. Okay? Oh, dear. How much so, of this, maybe podcast listeners can guess how much of it is true and how much of it you've made up. So the Reverend Dr. Was Ross Lockhart. Is that oh, it? Dear. That's all the titles you have? Uh, sure. Oh, <laughs> bless you. He's Bless an associate. You. Why associate professor? You must be a full professor. Okay, well, sorry, I don't. The need Lord's to work is never me. done. Uh, an associate <laughs> professor at St Andrews Hall at the University of British Columbia here in Vancouver. He is director of the Presbyterian formation of Presbyterian formation. So they're forming Presbyterians there. I like to tell my students that uh, I had an emotion twenty years ago. I didn't like it. And so that's part of the formation is just suck the... Oh, that's the how you make a Presbyterian? <laughs> <laughs> just slowly so just... So he does that. You know, refine that School out of, of them. Theology, where he teaches course, courses in a whole lot of things. Anyway. <laughs> um, he also teaches courses at Regent College and St. Mark's College. That's a Catholic crew, right? It is, yeah. St. Mark at, teach Mark's at UBC. Fantastic. Teach preaching there, yeah. And he's the founding director. Oh. I think that's awesome. Of the Center for Missional Leadership at St. Andrews Hall. Also, he's the author of, and I'll, I know this word, so I'm good, Lessons from Laodicea, because mm -hmm. we all need Lessons from Laodicea. <laughs> I've read it. It's fantastic. Bless uh, you. Missional Leadership in a Culture of Affluence. Mm. And then you're always into the good titles, books, and chapters, Beyond Snakes and Shamrocks. Mm. So I was texting about this book last night, and yeah. there is an emoji for a snake and an emoji for a, sh a shamrock. Stop in case you it. ever were looking for I one, so it is it. there because you Amazing. could. Amazing. Yep. Yep. I'm yep. on that right away <laughs> as soon as this podcast You're is welcome. done. And I think um, uh, Ross lives in North Vancouver and has people in his life. I do. <laughs> I do have people. <laughs> um, <laughs> Oh, no, it's uh, great to be here. Thanks so much. It's a, a real joy, especially on your first podcast, to be with you and uh, excited about the conversations that are going to take place around this table or wherever you uh, convene in the future. Yeah, we wanted to have you as our first guest. Mm -hmm, and you were our choice as our first guest. Thank you so much. Because Someone else didn't cancel or something no, like that? Promise. Bless you. Okay. I'll no. keep Todd honest. Okay, yeah, it's true. And because uh, knowing you, mm -hmm. having spent time with you and... Well, you know, oh, so many, church so many different, yeah, yeah community, yeah. church. The men's washroom at the Vancouver Club. What with, we were mentioning before, the best <laughs> shoe shine machine ever. I once did a wedding at the Vancouver Club, and my wife went into the women's bathroom, and I went to the men's, and like 10 minutes later, she was waiting. She said to the guy at the front desk, have you seen my husband? Like, he's the pastor. He's still in there. I was still oh. in, I was buffing like nobody's business. Those <laughs> shoes 
were unbelievable. But we digress. Oh, yeah. I wasn't there at the time. No, no, yeah, yeah. It's helpful <laughs> just, like, just to, to be clear. Just, just, later. Just, I, mean, I know I did. I just I know would I like did. to state, as a yeah. woman, we also wear shoes. And I've been in the women's bathroom at the Vancouver Club. There is no shoe shine. Oh, That's a gender I've justice issue anywhere. right there. It is, it is really unjust, and yeah. I may have to make a phone call. Well done. This. Please yeah. do. Mm-hmm. Please do. That's fantastic. So I... Here's why we wanted to have you on, because of that. And also because <laughs> even though we're not looking to define it like technically here, uh, I know that you're someone who can speak about theology, faith, God, the world in hopeful terms. And so we thought um, we'd kind of get started talking to you about that. So I thought maybe to start with a couple of Bart quotes yeah. that, Always Bart. that you would know. Love and Bart. That, and just get your reflection on them, and then we'll start asking some questions. Bart said, God's attack, so there's some kind of forceful language in there, mm. but God's attack is that of the love mm. of the Father and the Son. The attack of his affirmation of the world is generous self-giving. Yeah. I don't know, reflect. What do you Beautiful. Be- well, it's just, you know, it's so interesting to contrast that quote with what you were describing, uh, Bart's uh, experience, twofold experience uh, earlier uh, when it comes to Billy Graham. You know, he thought he was quite lovely in person and met him as a fellow believer um, and then was just appalled at the way in which the gospel was presented. And, you know, I think part of it is reading Bart today is helpful because we read it in a uh, post-Christendom secular, in this case, North Vancouver, right? right? And so um, where people, it's not just people in the church who struggle with a sense of hope. Um, my, my neighbors in this community, the people who I put out recycling boxes with in the morning, the people that I ride the you know, 247 bus and we walk into the same townhouse complex together at night, um, they struggle with hope too, right? They're really struggling with the sense of what is the, what is the purpose of life? Kind of like, where does it go? Yeah, and, and just a sense of it's not just people who are angst-ridden in the church. We are, um, we are in a society and in a time where we used to uh, roughly play off the same uh, meta-narrative and that's gone now, right? And so, in some ways, I find presenting the gospel today, uh, it's one of the reasons I accepted a call over a decade ago to the West Coast. Um, I, I love the West Coast. I love being in a space where I can never presume that people I bump into know anything about the gospel, right? Like anything it, about Christian faith. Basically. Sure, yeah. and, and uh, that I uh, primarily hold space with my family in a neighborhood full of affable agnostics and angry atheists. And I'm okay with that, right? And we all have, you know, when people want to talk about their issues with the church, I feel like saying, uh, hey, take a number, get in line. We've all got our beefs. But but that's, that's not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the gospel. I'm talking about, um, you know, the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ who holds our life in this world and, and is, for me, my, my ultimate hope. And that, um, you know, when you think of the way that Billy Graham presented the gospel and Bart described it as at gunpoint, I mean, there's a real um, curiosity that I have about our understanding of conversion in that case, right? And it comes down primarily to me about a difference between human agency and divine agency. Like, are we the ones that convert people? You know, is, is that the problem? So, you know, when you talk about being five years old and, and praying the sinner's prayer, you know, we can react to that today, but I don't think that's the problem in North Vancouver. 
you know, it's it's in the sense that it's not like, oh, you know, maybe we're uh, offering some curious theology to children. We're not offering any theology, and yet conversion still happens, right? Like we, Brian Stone, in his book Evangelism After Christendom, talks about how we swim in a culture of conversion, right? Like, you know, my own language would be, you know, there are people that are paid far better than we are, uh, in marketing to convert you from so converting onto like some yeah sure from from, from, from gap to gap to something anymore. else from Cielos right. to Viagra from yeah. Pepsi to Coke whatever we swim in a culture of I conversion heard today yeah now you might know this it's one of the little tag names that I've always kind of thought was really dumb is the store forever twenty one. Mm-hmm. Right. I've, I've often Who wants like, to be 21 forever? Oh, Come on. I know that, like, especially for women, like, no. there's often this pressure to look like you're 17 or whatever. Yeah. But Forever 21 is going under. Is that so right? So Forever, forever 21, 21 is not forever, right? <laughs> Unbelievable. But the, I, I know what you're saying. I think, like, I've seen it in, in church and outside of church. Bart talks about that faith shouldn't be, like, a faith of anxiety. Constant, mm-hmm. these are his words, constant questioning, worrying, complaining, accusing. To, to be constantly upset about something, to be constantly voicing concerns. Yeah. So you hear this kind of thing, and what you're saying is, you can hear that from religious communities, but you hear it in culture in general. Absolutely. I mean, um, on Friday, uh, there will be massive protests around the world uh, for care of creation, for the environment, right? Uh, people are anxious. They are worried. And they often are upset about. So. Indeed. Yeah. No, I'm not. I'm saying that like a, it's a real thing. People live with a sense of anxiety. I mean, when you think about North Vancouver where we sit, how many people do we know are literally, present company included, one, maybe two paychecks away from not being able to afford our homes, yeah. right? I mean, we're, we're anxious. We, we, this is not um, sitting back, kicking back on the beach, relaxing kind of, there, there's all kinds of anxiety present. So my question is, are we anxious about the right things, right? And, and what drives our sense of anxiety and where does our hope come uh, in, in the midst of that, right? So um, yeah, it's, uh, it's fascinating to, uh, to think about this theology of hope that you're bringing through the podcast um, for those who either are believers who are listening or people who say, no, I, I don't know anything about Christian faith, that's not my thing. Well then, you know, the, the topics you're gonna cover will, will push people right. to try and, try and name we their so. source yeah. of, of hope. Right. Yeah. For like when we're talking about Carl Bard and others, we, for for me, I mean the word that most of it, I think all of us here would know is eschatology, mm-hmm. which in in religious understanding is a word that says like how do things end or yeah. where are they where are they headed. It's not about end times. That's the wrong understanding mm-hmm. of it. But where's where everything are we going? going? Where which, are we going? Which, whether you're a person of faith or not, that question wouldn't matter. Sure. And the reason Bart was known as cheerful is that he had a hopeful eschatology yeah. that his belief in God and who he thought Jesus Christ was led him to see that things are, you know, ultimately there's redemption and something yeah. good that's going to happen. So he said, this is a line from him again, mm. I don't know when this was written because he's writing around, you know, the run-up to World War II yeah. as well and someone right. who was a dissenter against Hitler, him and Dietrich Bonhoeffer mm-hmm. mainly. And so it's interesting that he's cheerful in the midst of some pretty yes, dark times. Yes, very said, much. Very if much. we have this view of the future, then how can we help but being merry, he even said, even here and even today. Mm-hmm. And so I guess that's one of the things we're trying to do is think, is there a way to be hopeful? And does it make sense? Mm-hmm. Like not to just be blindly kind of, you know, whistling when things are being, you know, things are terrible or something, but that certainly in terms of faith, there's ways to be hopeful. So. Yeah. 
Well, thanks. Uh, we thought we'd start and get into the, some questions with asking you. Mm. I mean, it's not we're not looking for a technical definition, sure. So, but can you give us a brief description of what you think about or what you understand when you hear the term hopeful theology? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I want to make a distinction between optimism and uh, and hopefulness, right? So, optimism to me is primarily grounded in human agency, right? This is this is the um, the call to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, to have a different perspective, to change your life. I mean, I grew up in a home with significant uh, mental health challenges present uh, around me and would hear uh, such statements as that, right? You know, that, oh, so-and-so is just feeling blue, but they'll pull themselves through. and Power, so it's, it's positive all crap. thinking. Oh, my gosh, it's all crap. Yeah. And so uh, instead, for me, a theology of hope is grounded not in human agency but divine agency. Right. So that's it, a faith it is, statement. It, it, it absolutely is, and and it is a sense in which when I mean, people say, "Oh, you're so cheerful all the time, you're so optimistic," and depending on and the you are, circumstances, you really are. well, I, I, I mean, I, yeah, but but to me, it's not about optimism. It's about being grounded in in hope, which is tied very closely to, and it's a, it's a reformed emphasis, which is the tradition I come out of in the Presbyterian world. Um, but of God's sovereignty, right? You know, when we mm. talk about um, Karl Barth's analysis of what he saw with Billy Graham, part of it for me is through that lens of the doctrine of sovereignty of God, that it's almost like Billy Graham, in his um, it, it take on it, was trying to sell the gospel, to force the gospel so on people. So it's human agency that's sovereign in that model. Uh, correct, absolutely. If you don't make yes. this choice, yeah. you're done. Yeah. You're where, you know, I, I, I pay a lot of attention. I teach courses on evangelism and so forth. I am actually quite interested in conversion. I think it's, it's dangerous when Christians stop talking about conversion because the wider culture continues to talk about it in different ways. So what do we mean by conversion? And I can say both as a pastor and as a professor that I have um, tried to convert people, especially in my earlier days of ministry, and failed every time. But I have watched with wonder as the Holy Spirit has converted people again and again and again and and so what's our role in that the exciting part you say well then don't do anything no i mean bart is the one who uh who gives us such clear direction on the theology of witness yeah. right that uh Darryl, bearing witness to how good god is to absolutely god is. and so daryl guter who i work with and others in the missional church world uh daryl would talk about um being witness being a witness uh, doing witness and saying witness, that there's a threefold pattern for us as Christians, but we're always gesturing, we're always pointing uh, towards what God is doing rather than what, what we're doing, right? And so the hopefulness comes not in what my uh, broken human way is achieving, but in what I'm actually seeing with my own eyes what God is doing. And I think a, a legitimate beef a lot of people have with churches, and I guess preach Sunday by Sunday in different churches of different denominations, is sometimes we just see in the pews a real lack of changed lives. There, there, there is lack of evidence that what the gospel claims is true in people's lives, right? And that's a problem for us, for those of us who are still within the church. Yeah, well, I think it's really neat when you talk about um, that kind of hope and like what a beautiful picture in terms of you know watching the Holy Spirit convert yeah. and, and not and not ourselves you know taking thinking back to when you were talking about you know you live in a neighborhood with lots of 
um, I don't know, you used a lot of alliteration there. It was agnostics, <laughs> atheists. Angry agnostics. There yeah, we yeah. go. Affluent. There we go. Affable He's like agnostics. a walking happy poem. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, it was sure. just lovely. Hallmark card right here. Yeah. And I think, you know, the narrative in today's society is different than it mm -hmm. was in the 50s, where, um, you know, faith was woven more uh, succinctly into our everyday lives. Sure. And I think a lot of the reason for that disconnect is the hypocrisy, some might say, or disingenuity yep. of people in the church mm -hmm. that like to pretend that they're hopeful, sure. but actually their message is one of fear mm -hmm. and one of hell. Yep. And, um, you know, coming from a brethren background, um, they're big on the second coming, big on the rapture, yeah. you know. And uh, I, I was just mentioning this earlier that I have a family member that every time they came home from school as yeah. a child and couldn't immediately see their mother, they worried, oh my God, I've missed it. Like wow. I, I was behind. I mean, this, this like fear, this like, I know. And yes. I think, I think, boy, that's not hopeful. That's uh, that's, that's being saved. Hopeful. It's actually terror. It is. It is. It is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, so my question is, is, uh, you know, as we move into searching for something that is not that mm -hmm. into this hope, um, how do we do that in a way that, it, you know, doesn't make promises that we, you know, we don't want to write checks we can't cash. You know, yeah. come and, you know, conversion and, and Jesus doesn't promise a life free of, of anxieties. It, it, you know, it's not going to fix climate. It's not going to do all those things, right? And so, you know, I struggle with living in a, in a genuine way um, while remaining hopeful. Yeah, yeah. It's tough to do. Yeah. Well, and I think part of it, what I hear there is how how do we as Christians, not assuming that all the podcast listeners are Christians, and if you're not, you're especially welcome to listen and to participate. But for those of us who self-identify as Christians, how do we view the world outside our holy huddle, right? Mm. Is it, and, and here I'm borrowing from language, there's an uh, amazing book, a colleague of mine in Amsterdam at the Free University named Stefan Pass wrote Church Planting in the Secular West a couple of years ago, and he speaks in terms of, do Christians see the world outside of their own holy huddle as a, a dark canvas in which we are to try in yeah, vain sure. to paint on? Yeah. Or is it actually possible that the world outside our communities of faith um, are just ripe with revelation? are places in which we get to experience the holy in profound ways, including and perhaps most especially through those who don't self-identify as Christian, right? So if, you know, the, the whole rapture and end times, uh, end times theology is, um, is one that is so fear-based, but it also makes a pretty clear judgment about the value of the world. It's all, it's all discard. I mean, it reminds me of the, in the eighties. Can we? We're old enough. We remember the eighties. We're not. I, we're I not gonna. I know. Young. Oh, I'm, I'm older than you. You look great back then, buddy. You still look great. Come on. I remember in the eighties going to McDonald's. Do you remember the Mc uh, McBLT? Keep the yeah. hot side hot and the cool yeah. side cool. Yeah. And uh, everything, the Big Macs, Quarter Pounders, they were all served in styrofoam containers. Yes, I remember. And, and now when you think, man, like I was at a restaurant on the North Shore here and they brought like plastic straws and my three kids were like, these Gasping. people are evil. <laughs> we're like two years ago is okay, but now it's all paper oh, straws, yes. right? Like is, is the world around us disposable in order to advance our own salvation? Is that really what we read in the gospel? Or is it that we are participating with God in the remaking of the world 
um, and looking for signs of God's uh, providential care and love as, as we move through this one life we're given, right? It's a choice we make. So then, Ross, as Christians who, you know, want to talk about our faith or talk in, in response to mm. what we experience as our faith, if, if we're not going to start with, say, like, sin and harshness and badness and that sort of stuff that maybe was how I was told evangelism worked, mm. um, if we don't start with that, where do we start? Yeah, so, I mean, I think, I, I don't want, and it's always interesting when, I, when I've had so many great conversations with, with Todd over the years, and we come at this from a different perspective. So Todd comes at it, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but from a more conservative Christian perspective. Yeah, my, my tribe is more the evangelical. Yeah, and yeah. so I'm, I'm uh, what used to be called mainline Protestant. In fact, I instruct my students to refer to it exclusively in papers and in classes, the formerly mainline Protestant, <laughs> Lutheran, Anglican, Presbyterian, United. mainline just mean like Ma- mainline, that was the standard It perpetuates accepted. the myth that mainline is still normal, that most Canadians like get up on a Sunday. Mainstream. mainstream. It's not. It's old no. line. It's offline. It's whatever. Um, so formerly mainline would, um, you know, I can't think of how many uh, formerly mainline churches I would be in of a particular kind of brand where there would be no prayer of confession, for example. And I would say to the to the preacher afterwards, so so what's up with that? Shaking hands at the door. He'd be like, oh, well, we don't talk about sin because it just makes people so uncomfortable. And, you know, we just want, we don't want to make them uncomfortable. I thought, man, like what kind of lives are these people leading, Right. And so I think there's a place for sin, but I I would you mean a place for sin or talking about it? Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like I think there's with, when it comes yeah, exactly. So, but I just think in terms of brokenness, like human beings know their own brokenness, right? And so, but that's not that's not where I start. I mean, I start more in the sense of I don't think I think it's almost impossible to share the good news of Jesus without a personal experience of what that good news looks like, right? So I, I had, a, I had a, a children's minister at a former church, a lovely guy, and uh, called me up on the phone. He was just so excited. He was so excited. And he said, I've got good news. And I thought, you know how you have those phone calls where there's someone else in the background? And uh, I thought, there's someone else on this call, and it was his girlfriend. So he's, like, talking to you and to her. Yeah, well, she's, she's with him Listening on the phone. Yes. And, uh, and they both shout at the same time, we're engaged. Ah. And it was awesome. And, he, of course, the two of them went on to describe to me. They were really calling to see if I'd officiated their marriage. I was happy to. They went on to describe how they took a float plane over. He had arranged a float plane over downtown Vancouver. That's cool. Uh, pulled out the ring, dropped the ring, awkward. <laughs> off the plane? Uh, not recovered off the plane. The <laughs> recovered the ring. And then by the time they landed, the youth group from our church was there with champagne on the dock. My first thought as a pastor is, do they have permission to be out of school? I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to get emails. They did. Uh, and then the next day at church, when I saw him, I said, so uh, what did you do the rest of the night? And he said, uh, we stayed up all night calling everyone we knew. And then he said this. He said, look, we, we could have changed our Facebook status from single to engaged. See, yeah. But he said, when you've got news this good, you have to share it. And so for me, evangelism is having good news to share um, that is not about, let me share some good news so that you don't go to a place that burns, right? I mean, this is really about leaning into witness and testimony 
Um, and, and then the question we have within Christian community is, do we have those stories to share? And if we don't, why not? Right? Like mm. Mark, Mark Laberton, who's president of Fuller, an American Presbyterian pastor, describes this great story in his book called of Shaking Hands on a Sunday. And there's a guy who doesn't really fit the socioeconomic uh, fit of the community. And so Mark goes out of his way to be especially welcoming. The guy says, oh, yeah, Pastor, thanks so much. Uh, great, great to be here. Look, he says, I'm just so confused. I, I go to some churches, and they talk all about Jesus, but never mention anything about the world. Then I go to other churches, talk all about the world and what we need to do to fix it, but they hardly talk about Jesus. And he said, I've been coming to your church a few weeks. You seem to talk about both. Right. And Mark's feeling great at this point. And then the guy <laughs> says, so, Pastor, if I keep coming back to your church, will I meet people like Jesus? Right. And then he doesn't feel so good. He looks over his shoulder and thinks, I hope he doesn't talk to that guy because he's like got crazy conspiracy theories or that lady because she's mean, right? That's the difference of witness, right? Is that yeah. do we, do we in, in the language of uh, being, doing, saying witness, to borrow Guter's right. language, is, it, is there evidence, and right? In my experience, some of the most hopeful people in, inside a religious community are out. When I think of inside and what I'm thinking now, some of the most hopeful people are people who have experienced tremendous difficulty, heartache, loss in yeah. their lives, right? That, yes. That it's not a matter of like everything's okay. That some of the people no. who have the greatest hope are, are yeah. Yeah, so. yeah. I mean, it, there, there's a sense in which Christ both meets us in our brokenness, to go with Bonhoeffer's language, that at the same time using his language, that discipleship means joy, right? Like we hold that intention. We're completely realistic, you know, realistic about the state of the world and our role in it, but we don't stop there, right? And, and we don't think that we have the, within us the skill set to fix it. So for you, where is your hope challenged? I mean, you are generally a cheerful guy, I think, from sure. what I've seen. But like the rest of us, you must have times where you're kind of like, not saying to despair, but where when you look at culture in the world and where is your hope challenge? Yeah, well, I mean, I got into some of that in the lessons from Laodicea book. I mean, I think um, people have a, a remarkable ability to wallpaper over their brokenness with wealth. And so I think in, uh, in first world or in so-called secular Western culture, uh, it's particularly difficult sometimes to, to find space for um, for the kind of conversations around faith, we are we are primarily told that we are self-made people, right? And so, how do you insert into that narrative um, the honest truth talk that if we're self-made people, we're screwed, right? And and that and that the gospel actually has something cheerful to say about like something that. Better to say. Oh than my that. gosh! Yeah. Please, yeah. yes, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Um. Yeah, I, uh, I, w I was wanting to just sort of, as we, as we wrap up, mm -hmm. um, like, do you see any hope for, you know, correction of some of the excesses of the sort of liberal and conservative expression of Christian faith? Yeah, um, that's a great, that's a great question. Do I see hope in that? I would say absolutely. I, I would think that even the categories of liberal and conservative are human-made categories that, um, you know, I'm just, uh, when I think about where we sit now in the city of Vancouver, and as a missiologist, I pay particularly close attention to culture, uh, I would say that the Holy Spirit is literally remaking 
not only the church in Vancouver, but I would say the face of the church in Vancouver, right? So I, um, when, when I visit churches, it's amazing to see what God is doing in people's lives, that in the so-called, you know, formerly mainline churches, we are seeing some evidence of renewal, but often because those who are there are quite different than who was there 20, 30 years ago. And um, I just think the more we resist putting people into boxes, into categories, uh, is helpful. I think, um, you know, to be known as a Christ follower in general uh, must, must be the, the most important thing and to give a lot of grace as to how people are working that out. So I really resist the categories. Um, I find that in certain categories I'm known as a conservative and then I go walk into another room and I'm a yeah. liberal. So I'm just... I think uh, you know, maybe it's just yeah. my prairie boy thing, but I just don't really care what people think. I just kind of do my thing, and you know, so uh, I I know to now whom I belong. You've worked in, was it? You did some political stuff too in Ottawa. You used to. Yeah, live in, that. Was that like you were younger, m- much younger? Then? I was much younger. Yeah, because I remember <laughs> hearing some stories of like you on Parliament Hill. Yes, yes. Talking about hopeful place. Uh, well, depends uh, depends on one's perspective. I'm not jaded when it comes to. Uh, to public service, um, I think that uh, it's easy to throw stones yeah. from a distance. Yeah. And uh, let me say this: as a pastor, I have almost always had elected officials in my congregations, and I have made it a habit at least once a month to take them for lunch. And uh, there's sometimes suspicious early on, and then what I always say up front is, um, if I have a concern, I will call your constituency office, but I'm your pastor. Right. And uh, very few people ask an elected official how they're doing, yeah. right? There's always an angle. There's always well, some game. something to be like, I'm grateful that people are doing, yeah. serving in such mm-hmm. ways. And Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for coming and joining us. It's a joy to be here. Blessings. Oh, my ever. gosh. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed the Rattler. It, and it was uh, Rector's think, Cupboard you know, was amazing. So we're going to close the cupboard soon. I, but I'm before we do that, single tier. our cupboard host has emerged from the cupboard once again. He gets to keep coming out of the cupboard. Welcome back, sir. And Thank you very much. here to, I think, say farewell. Yeah, I really enjoyed the conversation. Great questions. Thank you very much for being here and being with us. Once again, we want to thank uh, Wild Eye Brewery and Samantha, the owner, who we'll hear from in a moment, uh, for hosting us, letting us be here for all the delicious beer and food. So thank you very much. And Where's his gift? Oh, oh yes, we have a gift for a you too. Yeah, we do. Yeah, we have like we have two bottles of beer. You thought, oh. you thought the devil. One of them is called nuts all the single ladies. Dear, 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 don't tell my wife. And the other one is weird sisters. Well, again, don't tell your wife. Indeed, no and comments. We there. also have a couple of glasses for you as a parting gift. So thank, thank you very you much. So much. It's a producer Rick. Well, I'm, I just I. All night I've been so excited to hear about your new R&B album you're going to drop called Ross Lockhart, A Time for Sin. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was A Place for oh, Sin. Oh, A Place for Sin. A Place for Sin. Ross Lockhart, A Place for Sin. Yeah, that's right. What, what happens <laughs> in the rector's <laughs> cupboard stays in the re- rector's cupboard, my friends. Dear, dear. Thank you very that's much for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you. And we hope we'll, you'll join us again soon for a future podcast. Mm-hmm.